Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and you're listening to In Conversation, an OUP podcast. And today, I'm happy to say we're talking to Ralph Kies about his wonderful book, The Hidden History of Coined Words. It's out from Oxford University Press just this year, 2021. Welcome to the show, Ralph. Thank you, Marshall. So happy to be here. Well, we're glad to have you here. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. I am a longtime writer. I've been writing articles, essays, op-eds, and books since uh, 1968. Uh, And I'm about to wrap it up. I think this will probably be my last book, uh, certainly under contract. And if I do continue to write, it'll be more for my own satisfaction, essays, and uh, maybe even a book on my own terms, something I'm interested in, but at my own pace. Well, you know, as I said, when we were talking before the interview, I've tried to stop writing before and failed utterly. So (laughs) I wish you luck in that endeavor. It is is addictive, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, I've done 17 books, and I think there hasn't been a one where at the end I haven't said, that's it. Yeah. No more books. Right. Well, <laughs> too, de- too too wearing, uh, too hard on my family. Where's where's you know? It's like where's Waldo? Where's Dad? Oh, he's yeah. in there working on his book. Oh. Right. That's that's. I, I'm very familiar with that. Mm. So, could you tell us why you wrote this book? What you what you wanted to accomplish with it? Well, Marshall, I've had a long time interest in words. I've always been fascinated by words, quotations phrases. So where did, you know, and like many people, I often think, where did that word come from? So as a writer, I'm always looking for interesting topics that, that, you know, kind of come to me and presumably come to other people and word origins uh, bubble up to the fore. But that that's a pretty, a pretty big uh, road to hose word origins. So I tried to narrow it down to coined words thinking I would write a book about coin words, how they were coined, who coined them. So I'd collect a bunch and then, you know, have almost like a glossary type of book and be off and running. Well, (laughs) how little I knew. Uh, I started off, uh, I just Googled coined by. Okay. So in the first page of Google hits, I got coined by stakeholder, I'm sorry, stakeholder was coined by, and it had three different names. Then I, then in the next, uh, next I did coined by, and I got supermodel coined by, again, three different people. Well, that was fairly typical of what I discovered is it's just, it's hard to know um, who was the actual coiner of a word. Many are disputed, some turned out to have antecedents, and that actually made became more interesting. What were the what were the actual stories behind the 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 coin, the coin words? What were the disputes? And so the book I had meant to be sort of a glossary evolved into what I call a hidden history: the stories behind the coinage of words, uh, which turned out to be much more fascinating than just the the words and the the names of coiners themselves, even if even if we could pin them down. 
Um, I'd like to start in kind of uh, scientific fashion with some definitions. And the thing that occurred to me when I was reading your book is that, isn't it the case that all words are coined? I mean, the English word tree is not in the tree itself. We right. have somebody had to make that up, I guess. Right. So uh, how do you make a distinction between coined and, I don't know what to call them, received words? Yeah, <laughs> the ancient Romans called their what they considered to be their actual language received and people who coined words in you know were said to have invented them and were, were quite looked down upon <clears throat> when horace began to coin words in his poetry he defended his right to to add uh, words to the language even though many disparaged him for the, for doing that um, many others there's been constant struggle over over the millennia as to whether words need to be coined at all or whether we should just rely on what you call received words. But there is, there is no such thing as received words. All words were coined somewhere, sometime by someone. Just in most cases, we don't know. In some cases, we do, or at least we have good evidence. And that's what I focused on in my book was, uh, was the words that, that we can point to that were coined. I'll give you an example. Electricity was coined by Sir Thomas Brown, a physician and philosopher and scientific experimenter in the 17th century. More recently, locavore, uh, a word of the year by Oxford, was coined by a woman, a food activist in the Bay Area named Jessica Prentice. One of my favorite is blurb, which was coined by the humorist Gillette Burgess, to promote a book, which he said, his publisher put wrapped it in a kind of a, a jacket that had a picture of a woman with her hand to her mouth shouting out. And they, they said, this is Belinda Blurb, Belinda Blurb, Miss Belinda Blurb in the act of blurbing this book, which we consider to be the purple penultimate. Uh, well, this was meant just to be a spoof, a joke. There was no intention of adding a word to the language. But to this day, we use Gillette Burgess's invention of the word blurb as, as um, a typical line promoting a book. It's a blurb. And this is fairly typical of how words get coined. Uh, it's, it's not so much that they're intentionally coined. Most words intentionally coined just blow away in the wind. But ones that are unintentional, that, that were meant to be just quips, or they might have been um, whimsical, or they might have been coined to taunt, to insult somebody. Uh, Big Bang, for example, is a coinage by the astrophysicist Fred Hoyle, who after World War II was doing commentaries on the British uh, Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, and he was very disdainful of the growing idea that the universe had been created uh, cataclysmically. And so in order to insult it, uh, out, taunt it out of, the, out of usage, he called it this Big Bang idea. Well, lo and behold, we like, we like Big Bang. Uh, and we like it today. We still use the term Big Bang. And poor Fred Hoyle, who thought he was blowing it out of the water, became known primarily as the coiner of Big Bang. Well, that's a, that's a nice legacy to have. 
I think. Well, he didn't like. It. No, but I, you know, he was darn good. Known as the guy who defended the uh, uh, the, the 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 continuous uh, development of the universe and what he called a sea field, sea field. Well, we haven't heard sea field recently. It's a pretty poor. Coin. No, I haven't. No. But he wished he wished he was known as the coiner of sea field, not sea the thing. So you've anticipated my next question, and that is how coinages occur. And I imagine it's very complicated. And one of the things that occurred to me is sometimes they're very intentional. I'm thinking of the periodic table. Mm-hmm. Like all of this in a nomenclature, a scientific note, all these words have to be invented because they refer to actual things and they're necessary symbolically. But that's not the way most words are coined, is it? No. I mean, I, I don't. I can't, I can't do and you. I don't think it would be possible to do a, a statistical assessment of how many were coined one way and how many were coined another. But what got me intrigued and what I ended up mostly writing about was the words that were coined unintentionally with no intent of adding a word to the lexicon. Uh, some were coined just by as misspellings. I'll give you an example. We, te- we say that you buttonhole somebody when you kind of accost them and bend their ear, you buttonhole them. Well, this originally was buttonholed. And it, that's more actually descriptive, where you grab somebody's buttons and you held them. But it got misspelled along the way as buttonhole, and today that's what we use, buttonhole somebody. Another word, daring do, began life in a Chaucer, a piece of writing by Chaucer, where he talked of somebody as Dorian do. And then through a, a typographer's misprint, it was misspelled daring do, and that's the way we use it today. Somebody has daring do. And that's uh, not at all untypical, that misspelling, mispronunciation. Think of the word bigly, which we've been using these days. Well, that was Donald Trump's uh, uh, slurring of bigling. He would say bigly, bigly. And we heard it as bigly, and we actually like bigly better than bigling, and that's the word we use today. Um so very unintentional. I referred earlier to words that were originally meant to taunt, not, not to replenish the language. Uh, Quaker began in the early 1600s when a, a magistrate in the town of Derby in England had the, the founder of the Society of Friends, George Fox, in his docket, and he uh, accused him of being a Quaker. Uh, just me, you know, somebody who quaked at the at the in fear of the Lord. Well, the Quakers themselves thought that wasn't a bad word, and they adopted it and use it to this day. Suffragette. Right. Yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead. Suffragette is another word. In 1906, a tabloid reporter uh, called the radical feminists in London uh, who were uh, fighting for suffragism, he, and they were called suffragists. He said, no, they were not suffragists. They were suffragettes. And he was thinking he was making fun of them and, you know, hopefully helping to get rid of them. Well, they liked the word suffragette. They liked it better than suffragist, and they began to call themselves suffragettes, and we still use that word today. Right, and if I'm not incorrect, Mormons don't call themselves Mormons but everybody refers to them as Mormons. Yeah, they prefer LDS. Or LDS, yeah. 
Exactly. And I do know Mormons who refer to themselves as Mormons. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, words lose their sting over time. Linguists call this semantic bleaching. Uh, let me give you a very good example. Um, guy. So you're a guy, I'm a guy. There's no, no harm in that, no, no insult. But yet the word guy began as a de- as, as a awful insult. It, uh, and it grows out of the fact that Guy Fawkes, the rebellious Englishman who tried to blow up Parliament in 1605 and was executed in 1606. Well, after that, when you wanted to really insult him and to taunt him, you called him a guy to associate him with Guy Fawkes. That was not a good, that was not a nice thing to say to somebody. You're a guy. But in the colonies, the guy lost lost its pejorative flavor. And there, calling somebody a guy was like as if you had called him a bloke or a chap or a fellow. Over time, guys, the plural, became by um, uh, bisexual, as it were, by, by gender. Um, you guys ready to order? Um, so guy lost its sting over time. But here's an interesting factoid, which is a... <laughs> a coinage by uh, Norman Mail or factoid. Here's an interesting factoid. Guy Fawkes himself wanted to be called Guido. That was his um, nickname in Italian. And just as an illustration of the happenstance of, of word coinage, suppose he had been called Guido. Then would we call him, you know, just average men Guidos? Would we call mixed groups uh would we call an average man a Guido mixed groups Guidos? Would we be saying so? You Guidos ready to order? Maybe, maybe so. Maybe not. probably not. Guido doesn't sound as good as Guy, and no, sound as good is very important for a successful coinage. Yeah, you reminded me of going Dutch, which when it was invented was a tremendous insult because English people didn't like Dutch people so much. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but now, isn't that, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, the historian in me wants to ask a, a very hard question, and that is, how do you discover when a word was was coined and who coined it? I, I would think that this is tremendously hard. It's very hard. And we have powerful tools on the internet now to trace us back to earliest use of a word in old publications that we didn't used to, to have. But even then... It, Earliest use is not the same thing as coinage. I mean, we can find a word being used, um, and yet it's not, that doesn't mean it was coined. You, you can find chattering class, for example. You, it was thought to be used mo- most early in English publications, but I did a, a an extensive internet search and found it being used in an 1870 publication called the Chautauquan in the U.S., uh, referring to the chattering class, but it probably was in use long before that. And that's a problem in pinning down who coined what, uh, because most words, I think, begin orally. They're out on the street. Probably that was true of chattering class. And by the time they hit print, they were probably long long being used um, orally. The word software, first showed up in print in 1958 in an article by the statistician John Tukey, 
but a software developer named Paul Naquette has made a persuasive case that in the ni- early 1950s, he and other soft, he and other, I'm sorry, programmers used the word software just as a jo- as an in joke, uh, an anti- you know, a, a spinoff on hardware. N- never thinking it would be taken seriously, and it wasn't until Tuki used it in print that we began to use software seriously and do today. But I doubt that Tuki originated that word. He just picked it up probably in in programmers' lingo and put it into the put it on the record, and as so often happens, got credit for having coined it. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering about the stages through which a word goes from its invention into the dictionary. And the idea of slang came to mind. So is slang a kind of intermediary stage between a neologism that hasn't been adopted and getting into Merriam-Webster? What, what is slang in this taxonomy? Well, slang is a good illustration of words that um, I referred to earlier that begin in conversation, street talk, uh, a lot of what you refer to as neologisms, the, you know, the pro-term for new words, uh, were originally just, you know, kind of fun talk on uh, amongst pals out, out on the street. Um, there's a guy named George Aid, who's not very well remembered today, a journalist very popular in his time in the early 20th century. And he wrote a column called Fables in Slang. And he wrote about people using slang terminology. And a lot of what he wrote uh, were words he had heard out on the street, uh, adapted a little, threw into the conversation with his newspaper work and began to be used by his hundreds of thousands of millions of readers, and we still use today. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of his characters, he said, he had saying, she gave me the glad hand, which was a piece of slang. Well, today we talk uh, very seriously about getting the glad hand. Uh, Same thing with um, tightwad. George Aide introduced uh, uh, the term tight wad as two words he was or he was the tightest wad in the county well cobbled together as one word we again it it became tight wad and we still use uh, tight wad today so slang is actually as you put it a very good way station from a word going from casual original usage on the street into being taken seriously uh and, uh, and getting into dictionaries, not just as slang, but as a serious usage. So what are the ways a word becomes, well, is born, let's put it that way, is simply being made up whole cloth. But there are a couple other ways, and I know this because I studied various languages and noticed that there were a lot of borrowings. Um, the word goes from one language into another and then changes meaning and is adopted. Are, do borrow words count as coinages or loan words, or are they just a different species of thing? Well, they tend to be in kind of a, a twilight zone and in between. They're kind of in between. So, for example, Charles Darwin, who surprisingly introduced 
a lot of words and phrases into the language, not just natural selection. Uh, from his uh, tours in, uh, of, of South America and Chile in particular, he picked up words like rodeo, lariat, um, alfalfa. These all were, he borrowed from the Spanish. Sometimes he'd alter the spelling and threw them into uh, English usage. And, and, you know, they're perfectly respectable English words now. We don't usually realize that they had an origin in Spanish. So did, Dor- did Darwin borrow those words? Did he coin them? Somewhere in between. Uh, I'll give you another example. And this goes back to the whole concept of creating a word to taunt. Um, in the late 18th century, a French commerce secretary named Gournay, who was very conservative, he, he introduced the concept of laissez-faire, uh, of just letting things happen, let the market uh, work its will. When he became commerce, um, what, what we would call the commerce secretary in the French government, he was appalled by all the people sitting at desks kind of running the government. Now, desks in French is bureau, B-U-R-E-A-U-X. Uh, so he, he took the word bureau and he called what he found in the government bureaucracy, men sitting at desks running the government. It was a bureaucracy. Now, he no way meant this to be a serious word. He meant it to be an insult, a, a, a taunt, uh, a, a, a form of ridicule. Well, bureaucracy was picked up, used seriously amongst the French. Then we borrowed it from them. And, of course, bureaucracy, bureaucrat are are very common words today. Uh, But they came originally from the French, which was uh, originally uh, a taunt word, an insult, a a point of ridicule. So it's not always clear. It's always it can be very sort of fuzzy as to, to what's a coinage, what's a borrowed word, what's some of each. Uh, language is very complicated, as, as you well know. Yeah, so you can make them up or you can borrow them, but there's another method too which I found interesting, and that is you can kind of reinvent them. That is, they fall out of use, but then you revive them sometimes with a different meaning. Does that count as a coinage? Um, it's a good question. I call those Van Winkle words. <laughs> they go to sleep for a long time and then they wake up and take their place in the vernacular. Uh, an excellent illustration is the word serendipity. Uh, this was born, this was, this was probably an original coinage. There's no evidence that it wasn't by Horace Walpole, the British writer and statesman in 1754. Walpole wrote a friend of his that he had been reading a book, a children's book, about the three princes of Serendip. Serendip being what Ceylon was called at the time, what we now call Sri Lanka. And these three princes were constantly making accidental discoveries. In his letter to his friend, Walpole said, so I've made up a word for making accidental discoveries. I'm calling it serendipity. Now, Mr. Walpole had not meant this to be a serious word. He never used it again, as far as we know. There's no record of it. It was just a confection. It was a a quip between friends. And it went to sleep for decades. But then when collections of Walpole's letters were published, 
Uh, one didn't even consider that letter with the word serendipity and it worth publishing, but another did. And the word began to be picked up, serendipity. It was kind of too good a word to just leave uh, in obscure volumes of, of letters or, or to Mr. Walpole's own uh, uh, lack of seriousness in, in coining it. And over time, it became one of our most popular words, serendipity. It's a word, very useful word, one we really need. Um, and today, it's often at the top of uh, the top 10 most popular words, serendipity. Uh, but that is a classic Van Winkle word, one that was born centuries ago, went to sleep for a long time, then gradually rose from its slumber to become one of our most useful words today. Uh, so serendipity. Some other examples are um, greenhouse effect. This one fascinates me. That sounds as, uh, as recent as yesterday's headlines, the greenhouse effect. But it was actually coined over a century ago by a physicist named John Henry Pointing, English, who coined, who said he referred to the blanketing of the atmosphere uh, that would uh, uh, heat up the, the uh, heat up the atmosphere uh, as the greenhouse effect. That was what he called it. A few years later, Alexander Graham Bell picked up on Pointing's coinage and began to use it himself in the World War One era. But then it sort of died down until global warming became such a hot issue, literally. And we needed a term to describe uh, its, its origins, and greenhouse effect was there in waiting, and we revived it uh, as a Van Winkle term. And now, of course, we use greenhouse effect constantly. So I can tell you that I generally don't like neologisms. There's something in me that finds them unlovely. And I think it's my mother who is an English teacher, a junior high school English teacher. She, she wouldn't like this. And I'm also reminded that my kids are presenting me with them all the time. They introduced me to a word, yeet, spelled Y-E-E-T, I think. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It means to toss or throw something. Never heard of it. I, you know, my kids use it all the time to yeet something. It's a verb. Okay. Yeah. A transitive verb. So, but I always think, you know, we have a word for that. In this case, we have toss and throw, but they like yeet. I just wonder, who are, who are the people that fight against neologisms? Is there a league of grammarians and lexicographers out there that are constantly saying, don't use that, use this? Oh, yeah. Particularly in, other, particularly in countries like France, Spain, Italy, they actually have academies, language academies, uh, part of whose job is to oversee new words, scrutinize them, and decide which ones are <laughs> acceptable for use. Uh, they, they don't always succeed, but that's part of their job. Uh, one reason I love English is we have no such academy. It, we're a very anarchic uh, language. Uh, anyone is, it's, it's very um, user-friendly. Uh, anyone is free to to throw in a neologism as, as they wish, or to permit uh, new words to come in, as we were discussing earlier, by accident, by happenstance, by misspelling, uh, by, by quips among friends. English is open to words coming in from every, I call it an open source language. And <laughs> that, that's why I think it's so user-friendly. But we still have people who sneer at, 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 at new words. Every country does. 
Um, but I, what I'm more interested in is what I call the Academy of Users. So which, which words do the Academy of Users approve of uh, simply by using them and which ones don't? Now, most, most new words are, are, are not approved. Um, I, one of the worst ways to get a new word into the language is to make one up and then uh, insist that people use it. Well, you know, we like being told to use a new word as much as we like being told to floss our teeth. <laughs> we'd, we'd rather come upon them ourselves. Um, and we do. Uh, all the misspellings and, 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 and coin, you know, words that were meant to be uh, jokes. Uh, crowdsource, uh, a guy named uh, Jeffrey Howe coined crowdsource just as a, a to- just as a, a way to ridicule all the portmanteaus, portmanteaus, the, the mashed up words that are very common in the Silicon Valley. So he thought, oh, you want to mash up? You want a portmanteau? How about crowdsource? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> well, and little did he know that users kind of like that crowdsource. Yeah, that's a good word. Uh, and it became so popular and how, despite his thinking it was a mere joke, ended up himself writing a book called Crowdsourcing. So, yeah, we, you know, words, words come from who knows where, who knows why. And in English, anyway, uh, they win a place in the language and in the dictionary by, by usage. The one that users like you and me like and find useful, regardless of their point of origin. I think in the case of Yeet, my uh, kids use it as a shibboleth, which undoubtedly is a Van Winkle word of some sort. Is that they know it and I don't, <laughs> and they like I think that. That's a good point. <laughs> um, yeah, that's but, a good what. That's a good reason to use a word to uh, to exclude other people who don't know the meaning of the word. And kids, kids do it, can do it as much as any. Kids are great neologizers, incidentally. Uh, I mean, let me stop. Let me digress. Neologizer is a word invented by Thomas Jefferson, the great linguist. Uh, who loved to coin new words, and he coined the word neologizer. Well, the Brits back home hated, the, you know, the, the, the guardians of proper English hated neologizer. They called it a vile Americanism. When Thomas Jefferson coined the word belittle, a reviewer said, uh, shame on you, <laughs> Mr. Jefferson. What an awful word, belittle. It may have some meaning over there, but it has no meaning to us. Uh, so... But getting back to kids who are natural-born neologizers, my grandchildren love to create new words, and I think that's a sign of creativity on their part, whether the words are useful or not. We had a 10-year-old neighbor who used to come over and shoot hoops with us uh, when we lived in San Diego, and she used to take wild shots. And we asked her, um, uh, Tracy, why do you take such wild shots? And she said, it's because I'm very chanceful. <laughs> that's, a great word. that's a good word. Yeah, yeah I love that. Chanceful. That is a good word. Yeah, we use, to this day, we use that word ourselves. Well, I, I, I was being chanceful when I. <laughs> that's an excellent word. Yeah, yeah. kudos to yeah. her. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned the French, I'm reminded of something else. This is not something I thought about before you mentioned it. But where do we put novel names, especially first names. America is full of them, but I'm told that the French have a kind of different take on this, that 
you can't name your kid something unless it's on the approved list. So what do you do with made up names? Are they neologisms? Hmm. That's a good question. I would technically I wouldn't say so. I mean, I would call them maybe close cousins, first cousins. I know there are some names and I I, I don't have them uh, at hand that have been disapproved. Uh, it, it, you know, in the U.S., we're very, you know, whatever you want to name your kid is your business. But there's some that are considered uh, too much beyond the pale to be approved on birth certificates. Um, I think I might have read Hitler was one. Somebody, some nationalist wanted to name their kid Hitler and was was not recorded on the birth certificate. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm reminded of a statement which is probably falsely attributed to one of the founders, and that is that uh, the Constitution gives us the right to say whatever we want, but it doesn't give us the good sense not to. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so this is really the big question, and I don't know if it's answerable at all, but how do coined words catch on? Is there anything general we can say about the process that makes one candidate successful and another one not successful? Well, first of all, I think they have to fill a need. You know, there has to not be a perfectly good word already um, that we're using in where we, we actually need one. So, you know, right now we have a flood of misinformation Um and we call it fake news, false facts, post-truth. Um, we, we have a yawning need for words to describe this, this epidemic, this plague of misinformation that's awash in the land. Well, I'm predicting that over time, Kellyanne Conway's blithe reference to alternative facts will become a common phrase in the language alternative facts for we're already using it ironically uh oh that's uh, you yeah. know when somebody is it makes a, a a false statement we say there he goes with his alternative facts again but a lot of times words will begin being used ironically and then become used seriously and i think over time alternative facts will, will probably uh, become a serious part of language uh, already. You know, think of Zoom. I mean, okay, Zoom was an existing word, so it got recoined for a form of of, 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 of communication. Uh, and think of all the different ways Zoom just over the past year has has become used. So I'm in my Zoom room, got my Zoom outfit on. So why don't you give me a Zoom? Unless you're zoomed out, you know, zoomified. Uh, <laughs> you know, I am concerned about the zoomification of society, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and these are just a few, <laughs> just yeah. a few uh, of, of of the many ways. But so, why did Zoom catch on so fast? Well, partly because we use that platform so often, but also because it's just a great word. It's it's terse. It's forceful. It's fun to say. It's got a great uh, opening letter Z, it's got two O's, just like Google or Goop. Um, two O's is a very good, a very good form of a new word. So if you want to coin a word, make it terse, make it forceful, use a Z, use a B, use double O's, you know, think about boondoggle, gobbledygook. Uh, the, these are, 
these words, they're just, they're fun to say, they're descriptive, gobbledygook, okay, we've got other words, um, bureaucraties, etc., jargony for, for what gobbledygook describes, but nothing is as much fun to say, so that's our go-to word for, for ornate language, that's just gobbledygook. Which incidentally was a coinage of a federal bureaucrat, Maury Maverick, a former congressman from Texas, who coined gobbledygook to um, to uh, remonstrate with his employees, tell them not to use such ornate language, stay off the gobbledygook language. You've reminded me of the word invite, which has become a noun, an invite. I'll send you an invite as opposed to invitation. It's a little bit like quote and quotation. Right. The right word is quotate right. I put that in air quotes. <laughs> the proper word is quotation, but we all yeah. say quote. Yeah. So we send people invites now. <laughs> right. Well, words are constantly shift, shifting back and forth between being nouns and um, being verbs. Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes call it verbizing. Uh, you take a noun and you make a verb out of it. You know, Zoomer is originally a, a noun. Now it's a verb. Uh, any number of words uh, uh, go, travel that trajectory back and forth. In, invite uh, is, is a, in that case, it goes in the opposite direction. It was a verb. But now it can be considered a noun because it's a little more fun to say and a little terser than invitation. That's that's the law of terseness uh, that I just coined uh, for successful coinages. From the business perspective, that's really the holy the holy grail of branding when your noun becomes a, a verb, like to Google. Like you can't really do better in terms of branding than that. No, no, that's that's. <laughs> That, as you call it, that's that's the holy grail. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, branding. Let's talk a second about branding. Okay. Um, nylon was a was it won a contest. There have been word. There have been a lot of word coining contests. Very few of the winners uh, get picked up. NPR ran a contest for to come up with a word for an almost sneeze. Somebody who sneezes but holds it in. The winner was. Sniff hanger. Well, when was the last time you heard about somebody engaging in a sniff hanger? On the other hand, in 1923, a banker in Boston who was a staunch prohibitionist ran a contest to come up with a word for those who flout prohibition, uh, the prohibition laws, and the winner was scofflaw. Uh, now, that was picked up, and a, a rare contest winner that became an actual usage. Uh, but he, and even after uh, prohibition was repealed, there were no more uh, laws against consumption of alcohol to um, to to um, to scoff at, to flout, to flout. Uh, even afterwards, he the word scoff law. This contest winner is still one we use. It's just it's just a very good word. Uh, nylon won an in-house contest in Dupont. Uh, Transistor won an in-house contest at Bell Labs. Um, so, you know, branding is a very, very um, interesting venue for, for coining words. Saran wrap, uh, you know, we think, well, you need to very careful scrutiny. You need to consider all 
all the origins, the clauses, the Greek, the Latin, how was saran wrap, which was a very successful coinage, coined. An executive at Dow Chemical took his wife's name, Sarah, and his daughter's name, Anne, and he mashed them together and came up with saran. And lo and behold, he had a, success, <laughs> a successful brand name, one we still use. In fact, we use saran wrap generically now. I mean, there's so many other different brands of clingy wrap, but we in our house, and I'm sure many others, we still call any clingy wrap that we use saran wrap. Yes, at my house we do as well. It's saran wrap. Um, so can you tell us about some famous wordsmiths? And I'm wondering if the word wordsmith is a neologism itself. And you do mention in the book that you're not going to give us a long recitation of words created by Shakespeare, but because most people know that Shakespeare coined a lot of words. But are there other people that come to mind who really have added tremendously to the English language in terms of coinage? Well, Sir Thomas Brown, I mentioned earlier, uh, coined electricity and a bunch of others. He's very famous in the history of, of neology. Um, one of, you know, Chaucer, um, one of my favorite is, and the favorite of many linguists is, is Milton. Um, he coined hundreds of, of, of words. Uh, and just to give you a small handful, lovelorn, impassive, earth-shaking. Uh, he would often coin one word and then add a, add a clause and double up and get another word out of it. For example, Milton coined obtrusive. Then he added a UN as a prefix and came up with unobtrusive. And so he would kind of double the volume of his, of his coinage vocabulary uh, by adding prefixes and suffixes. And Milton, incidentally, was the first to use the word space to mean out, out in space, out in the universe, uh, space. Uh, so uh, Milton is, is one of the most prolific coiners, uh, the most famous one, of course, being Pandemonium, which he used in his epic poem Paradise Lost to refer to, to the hell, that the chaotic hell where where sinners were consigned. Well, now we just use pandemonium, you know, with a lowercase. He used it with an uppercase P. We use it with a lowercase P just as another word for chaos. It was pandemonium, another Miltonism. I find it quite remarkable that many of the words that Milton coined don't seem coined. There's nothing artificial about them to me. I, you just can't tell. They just seem to be basic parts of the language now, and I would never have guessed that they were anything but received words. Right. Well, that's one of the most important qualities of a an adopted neologism, that it not call attention to itself. I mean, one of the reasons so many coinages, particularly clever ones, disappear soon after they were introduced is they just don't have any inherent meaning. They're too complicated. They're too... Uh, in-housey. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the, the famous um, biologist, zoologist, who wrote the selfish gene and introduced the word meme, which was a very successful coinage. He took it um, from a Greek, it was a, claw, a Greek clause, and we still use it. But then later he wanted to introduce another word that he called dundridge. 
Now, Dundridge was the name of, a, of an officious, fussy bureaucrat in a novel he liked. And so when he wanted to uh, express disdain for a fussy bureaucrat, he called him a Dundridge. Then he went online and created a campaign for himself to try to get people to adopt <laughs> Dundridge. But who knows from Dundridge? I mean, what is it? <laughs> it just had no inherent meaning. It called too much attention to itself. And uh, it was ridiculed off on the internet into oblivion. Who, who We don't hear of that one anymore. But uh, people who have really looked into what makes for a successful neologism say unobtrusiveness is one of the keys that, that as you said, we don't, it doesn't uh, sound like, a, like a, a, an invented word, a created word. Um, scientist, which was incidentally created originally as a, as a joke of a word, scientist in the early 1830s, uh, like tobacconist, right, atheist. Uh, it, it was a scientist himself, William Wewell, suggested that people in his profession call themselves scientists, meaning never thinking it would, um, it would be adopted. Uh, he said it was comparable to the word sciolist, which was popular at the time, meaning people who don't know much but act like they do. <laughs> well, lo and behold, the public liked it quite well. Scientists, that sounds about right. It still sounds about right. It's not a word that calls a lot of attention to itself. It's not particularly clever, it's, but it's very useful. And so to this day, we use this, this jokey word scientist as a very, a very serious and useful word. Well, it trips off the tongue much better than natural philosopher. Exactly. <laughs> too many, too many, too many exactly. syllables in natural yeah, philosopher. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let me ask another hard question, and that is, is the rate at which words are being invented increasing? My gut would say yes, but I'm often wrong. Uh, yeah, well, I would agree with you. I think they probably are increasing uh, along with the ones which disappear, which is most of them, because coining words has become a very popular pursuit. It used to be that it was considered kind of a shameful practice, just, you know, one engaged in by slangy columnists and pulp fiction writers. When a book, uh, a guy named Leon Mead wrote a book in the early 20th century at the turn of the um, 19th and 20th century called word coinage, he contacted a bunch of uh, prominent public people, writers and politicians and so on, and asked them what words they had coined. Well, most re responded with great umbrage. They took umbrage. I always like that word. Uh, and said that no way did they coin words and, you know, they would be ashamed to have done so. Well, you know, fast forward a century now, it's a very prestige pursuit. Uh, how many headlines do you see? And they're all over the place saying, uh, coin the word, you know, so, such and so, Herbert Weinberg, coined the word workaholic. Uh, or in the poor Fred Hoyle's case, even though he did not want to be associated with his uh, taunt of a coinage big bang when he died in 2004, it was very typical for headlines of his obituaries to read Fred Hoyle coined big bang. <laughs> uh, Poor guy. It's a very popular pursuit now. It's funny you mentioned umbrage because my kids will say that's from, I think, the Latin word for 
shade or shadow, umber. I could be wrong about that, but my kids will say to throw shade on someone. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Maybe that came from umberage. That would yeah, be I don't know exactly, but yeah, they, they got, like the, sa- better, they got the same metaphor. They got the yeah. right metaphor there. Yeah. 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 So here's another really hard question. Um, uh, say I wanted to actually get uh, neologism into circulation, and I actually have an idea. It's called key crud, and that's the stuff that falls out of your keyboard when you turn it over. You know that gross, really disgusting stuff that's always in your keyboard? How, how do I get that into circulation? Is there any method or best practice you could recommend to our listeners? Well, first of all, I wouldn't tr- push it yourself. That's, <laughs> that's, that's just, that's a sure, surefired way to get people to ignore your, your coinage. It's, it's too obvious. It's too, uh, too intentional. As I said earlier, it's like being, you know, use my coinage, flush, flush your teeth. Uh, so what I would do is I would leak it. I would feed it to particularly a columnist. Columnists are great promoters of coin words. Um, so if you have a columnist friend or a blogger, uh, feed them key crud uh, and have them say, well, as, uh, uh, as Marshall Poe says, key crud falls out of your, your keyboard when you, when you turn it over, then you're much more likely to get it adopted because it wasn't you pushing it. It was your column, this columnist uh, or this blogger. So, um, but most of all, I think the main thing is just to come up with a very, a word we need, a useful word, a word that's fun to say, a word that uses good letters. And by good letters, I mean B, G, K, and Z are excellent uh, letters to use. They're, they're, they're commonly part of, of successful neologisms. Well, I'll give it my best shot. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Key crud has a K. That's good. Yeah, no, I think it might it yeah. might work. I don't know. I'm not yeah. counting on it. Um, can I trademark a word like that? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Trademark is a funny area. You know, you can't trademark a book title, for example. I mean, book titles are great sources of of new words, but um, I don't know. That's a good question. I should look into that. Can you trademark a coin word? I sure hope not. I hope not to. Yeah, probably in France. Um, we, <laughs> I don't want to do any more French bashing. I love French people, just so the listeners know. Um, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, Ralph, and I, our traditional closing question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? So what do you well, have? Yeah. I've, I've just, this book, The Hidden History of Coin Words, has just been published, and I'm still in the never again phase. So uh, that's the way I'm feeling. But and, you know, I'm in my 70s, and I think at a certain point, particularly as far as getting a book under contract, as I've always tried to do, uh, with an advance against royalties, a deadline, which I'm sure you know is a real onerous kind of pressure to have hovering over your head. Um, but I, I want to continue writing essays, op-eds. And as far as books go, I've been working for decades on a family history. Uh, and by that, I mean not just a, gene, a work of genealogy, but a history of my family and their times uh, coming over to, from England and early. This is the Kaisers. There are others. Uh, but coming over from New England to help settle uh, Watertown in Massachusetts in the early 17th century, 
fighting in all the major wars of the U.S. Some owned slaves, others were abolitionists. One got uh, Asa Kais, a, a district attorney in Los Angeles, got sent, in, sent to San Quentin for taking bribes. Uh, and I'm, so I'm interested, a friend of mine says there are a bunch of zealings. <laughs> they were present at all these, these events, even though they weren't prime movers and shakers. But what I'm particularly interested in is what I call the warrior versus the priestly class being illustrated in my family. Uh, one line from a guy named Solomon Kais, who was a, a, a militia officer in the colonies, uh, has a lot of military officers uh, amongst his descendants, including a Union general in the Civil War and General Patton, a major uh, aide-de-camp in uh, planning the invasion of Sicily. But then there, the priestly class descended from Solomon's brother, Elias, who was not a warrior, was more of a religious type of guy. Uh, and they tended more to be ministers, uh, deacons, uh, you know, me- important members of their church. And I'm descended from the priestly class. So it's interesting, when, and this is what I'm trying to write about when you look back in your family's history, how the traits of your line persist over one gen- from one generation to another. And that's what I'm trying to write about to, uh, among the ancestors of mine. I, I'm, it's fascinating you mentioned this because I'm interested in this as well. My sister got very into um, genealogy, and I should tell all the listeners, they probably know this, but the internet has revolutionized genealogy. You can really find out to whom you are related with a great degree of accuracy, pretty easily, um, using the right tools. And she did this, and I was presented with the findings, and I was sort of amazed. And as a historian, I was like, hmm, that's a story I might want to tell my kids. Unfortunately, I don't know it. <laughs> Write it up, Marshall. <laughs> I, I might do that. They will, guaranteed your kids will yawn. My kids will probably read it and nobody else, which is probably just the way I, it should be. <laughs> right now, they'll yawn and say, oh, Dad, there you go again. Who cares about that stuff? Nobody cares but you. It's really boring. So you were related to some guy who fought in the Civil War. Big deal. Uh, But then when you're gone, they'll say, oh, my God, I want to find out more about my ancestors who fought in the Civil War. I wonder who I could ask. Wish I'd asked Dad. He always wanted to talk to me about that stuff, and I blew him off. Gee, I wish Dad was back. (laughs) That's nice of you to say. Well, uh, let me tell everyone that we've been talking to Ralph Kais about his book, The Hidden History of Coined Words. It's just out from Oxford University Press. And this is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I also host In Conversation, an Oxford University Press podcast. And Ralph, let me say thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. It's been enjoyable.